Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of the Detroit Bad Boys podcast, uh, recorded right after the West Coast trip. Thank you so much for listening and for finding this podcast. So let's just start right there. If you're listening, you found it. Thank you so much for listening and continuing to support our podcast. The best way to continue your support is to subscribe on iTunes. You can find it there at iTunes.com slash Detroit Bad Boys. Also on Blog Talk Radio, Blog Talk Radio slash Detroit Bad Boys. And of course, the home for this podcast, SB Nation's site, DetroitBadBoys.com. As soon as the episode is up and edited, it is on the website. That should be your home and your hub for all Pistons information. We've got a stacked house this week. Three people joining me, which I kind of like. I like that I probably can sit back a little bit and, and allow you guys to take this one over. But joining me this week, as he does every week, is Ben Galker. How you doing, Ben? Hey, I'm doing great, guys. It's good to talk with you. Uh, in spite of the recent struggles, it's still fun to connect and talk Pistons. That's right. Uh, also joining us this week is Sean Wheeler, also known on Detroit Bad Boys as Hypno Wheel. How you doing, Sean? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Absolutely. And also joining us, our resident Westsider... Well, one of them, because Ben, I just learned from Holland, Jacob Kivenhoven, who helps cover the Grand Rapids Drive for the Detroit Bad Boys site. Jacob, how are you doing? I'm awesome. Thanks for having me on, Ben. Yes. So let's uh, let's start where we just left off. Last night was the end of the Pistons road trip. Pistons end up going two and four out west, losing the last four. I think the highlight of that trip, and stop me if I'm wrong, was the Portland game in the comeback in the fourth quarter. But there were definitely some low points and some moments that made me hesitate as a fan and someone who's trying to get a sense of this team going forward. So I think I'll just go to each of you individually. What was kind of your low point or what team weakness did you see during this road trip? Ben, I'll start with you. So the low point has to be the loss to the Lakers. Um, In a very close second was DeMarcus Cousins playing well against the Pistons because I sort of mentioned this off the air last week. I was really hoping that Andre Drummond would just uh, put a beat down on DeMarcus Cousins. Of course, that didn't happen. Um, but, you know, Lakers and Celtics, two arch enemies of the Pistons historically, throw the Bulls in there for me as well for the sort of triumvirate, triumvirate of evil. Um, but, yeah, losing to the Lakers and an aging Kobe Bryant who doesn't even look like he belongs in an NBA basketball court half the time, that was tough to stomach. Uh, they looked tired. They looked beaten down really throughout the whole game, and it, it never really was uh, much of a contest. In terms of weaknesses, you know, I've got to say it, it continues to be the bench. I, I've been a bit optimistic. I think eventually, yes, the bench will play better, but we really got exposed. Um, we have very little to support the one, two, and three position right now, other than Stanley Johnson having one nice game and Dinwiddie performing relatively well last night. And even at the backup four, uh, Tolliver has, has been very poor relative to what he was last. The bench is the, the greatest area of weakness moving forward, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, it's definitely something we can probably talk a little bit more about. The The bench so far has been, I think it was expected that the bench might be weak to start the season, especially after we lost Jody Meeks, not having Brandon Jennings healthy to start. But uh, it's definitely been... 
um, a letdown spot for this team. Um, Sean, what would you say is your low point of the West Coast trip so far? Well, it, well, it'd be easy to say the Lakers. Um, I'd have to say it was actually more frustrating to see the end of the Clippers game or, or the, the parts of the Clippers game where they went to Hackadre. It's so incredibly frustrating to watch that work. And that was clearly what, you know, kind of just really amplified the demise at the end of that game. You know, they were, they were up and the Clippers resorted to that. And the lead just dwindled really quickly. And to watch Dre suffer the way he did and how he could just kind of, when he starts missing those free throws, he just starts chucking them up there like he doesn't care, you know, as though he's just too frustrated. And that was really, really hard to watch after they played so well in the first half of that game. Definitely. So, so far, Ben, you know, you kind of talked about the Kings game, mention of the Lakers and Clippers game. Jacob, what was what was your uh, low point of this West Coast trip so far? Yeah, I think uh, Drummond airballing that free throw in the Clippers game was definitely up there, as well as obviously pretty much the whole loss to the Lakers. Uh, something that also I think deserves mentioning is the play of Reggie, Reggie Jackson, which sort of gets into what Ben was talking about with the uh, the weakness of the team, which I would say if Reggie's not playing well, there isn't a single guy on this roster who you trust to have the ball in his hands and making plays. So seeing him kind of just blindly put the ball on the floor, drive to the hoop, seeming like he had already decided before he had even crossed half court that he was going to shoot, that was pretty depressing for me. I agree, and I would just say that the free throw numbers in general during the West Coast trip, it was very upsetting. And a lot of that, yeah, you're right, Andre Drummond, I expected him to be better this season from the free throw line, but I don't ex- I didn't even really expect him to shoot maybe 50%. I think that was kind of my hope for this season. I think one other thing there is uh, I'm someone who doesn't really believe in hacking somebody as a strategy that really works. I don't believe in it as a strategy, so it hurts for to see it work against us because I don't want Stan Van Gundy to be afraid of putting Andre out there because even if Andre can get up to 45 even 50%, that's still an above-average NBA possession for us, and it's also we can get our defense back, and I think it could actually backfire if it doesn't hurt Andre's confidence to be out there shooting free throws, which it really looked like it did this trip, so that was a big disappointment for me. Yeah, I have to jump in real quick because you know the first few games of the season when they were playing really well and winning tough games, Dre was hitting above 50%, or he was hitting like 60, I think, after the first few games, and that was very important because they won two really close games um, two or three really close games during that span in which, you know, if he'd shot his career norm, they probably would have lost or it would have been, you know, much more likely they would have lost. The thing I want to jump in and say is, you know, we read in the offseason that Stan Van Gundy hired uh, a sort of mental coach of some sort to work with Dre. And, you know, I have to say, you know, it's clearly not working. And it's not, it's not just that he's missing free throws. It's that his body language, his attitude is just very um, – it's very immature and unprofessional when he begins to lose or when he begins to miss or when the intentional fouls start. And that is all in the mind. I mean, that is all about mental strength. It's all about attitude. It's all about having, you know, being able to take the right mentality to the free throw line. So I don't know about Kopla or Hopla. I forget how you pronounce his name. I don't know um, exactly what his involvement has been with Dre, but I can say that from the mental side, he still needs a lot of work or better work than what they're giving him already. Yeah, and I would say about Hoppla as well, I don't know if he's helped with just the team shooting in general, at least from the free throw line. Pistons have the worst free throw percentage right now in the league at 63%. That is six points lower 
Then the next closest team, the Cavaliers, at almost 70%. So it's really the entire team that's struggling. And uh, I think Jason Brunkowski had an article today that uh, mentioned just the free throw woes with the entire team. And so the only two so far have performed better than their career averages are Marcus Morris and KCP. Everyone else is either performing how they have always or have been worse. Uh, and I include Reggie Jackson in that. Reggie Jackson has been noticeably worse from the free throw line this season. And aside from Reggie Jackson and uh, Ersan Ilyasova, pretty much every veteran on that team is shooting worse than their career averages from three. And there, there's some good reasons for that, but it's just something that I noticed. Ben, I wanted to turn over to you. I took away from the West Coast trip some worries about Reggie Jackson, and I'm not sure if it's too early to worry about uh, Reggie Jackson. What do you think of his performance on the West Coast, and is that someone we should worry about as the team's leader and the engine for the offense going forward? Yeah, Reggie Jackson, in my opinion, when you look at his entire career, and then when you focus really specifically on the short amount of time that he's been a full-time starter, and you can include some sometime in Oklahoma City there, but then also the time in Detroit, he's really been sort of a feast or famine player. And one of the things I know I talked a lot about in the comments with folks last year after we traded for him was just that. And then that's really what we saw sort of in a microcosm of those 27 games. When he first arrived in Detroit, it was famine. It was ugly. We went on a nasty losing streak. But then he started to round into form, and maybe it was, it was a fluke, maybe it was chemistry, but whatever reason it was, he played really, really well. So he went from terrible to, to borderline superstar over the course of a 27-game period. And I kind of think this might be the player Reggie Jackson is at this point in his development. I think he can be really fantastic, and when he is, he's capable of doing things like he did against Portland. He can literally take the team on his back and find a way to get a win out of an impossible situation. But, man, when he's off, he seems to be really, really off. And, and for me, for him to justify the money we gave him, and as you put it, to be the leader of the franchise moving forward, even if Drummond is really the franchise player, he's sort of the leader and initiator of everything on the offensive side of the court. He's got to figure out how to round out those lows so that the games where he's not shooting well, he's still able to find a way to contribute positively to the outcome of the game. And for me... Yes, that's the biggest worry. If Reggie isn't playing well, it really doesn't matter what what else happens because we're just not going to get where we want to be. He's going to go, or, or we're going to go as a team as far as he takes us, in my opinion. And I, I really do think we saw that sort of bear itself out over the course of a six-game road trip. You're right that he has to find that way to be a part of the team's success even if he cannot find his own shot some nights. Because it does still seem you're right, he has those moments where it is feast or famine. And there are two stats to me that kind of stick out right now with the Pistons that I'm worried about. One is the free throw numbers, and the other is just our true shooting percentage, uh, a league low 49%, um, one of just two teams under 50%. Sean, you had mentioned that many of the veterans on this team have worse three-point percentages right now than they have throughout most of their career. Can you pin some of that to Reggie Jackson, or do you kind of see why that's happening? You know, it almost seems like it's... It... It could be either or, meaning each one makes the other situation worse. Because number one, if you're not giving guys the ball when they're in rhythm and in the right spots and at the right time, then it makes their shots a lot harder and more awkward to make. Um, and yet at the same time, we do see guys that are missing open looks pretty regularly, you know, Tolliver and others. They're missing these wide open looks, and, and when they're missing, 
the other team has very little incentive to create space for Reggie Jackson. You know, you see when he when he starts taking it to the hole, he's an amazing finisher, but he needs some space. And so unless these guys start knocking down some shots, it's like I don't I don't know which of these things is gonna work itself out first. They gotta make some shots so that Reggie has more room and Reggie needs to find them good looks so that they can start making shots. Um, so it's it's really a kind of a, a horrible recipe right now for both of those parts of the game. Is there anything you think could improve either one of those? Uh, is it, you know, something like maybe picking up the pace or having the offense run through someone else? I think, honestly, it's this, this nebulous thing called um, continuity and familiarity. <laughs> you, you can't, for, and I wrote about this in one or two of my articles before the season, you can't underestimate the power of familiarity when it comes to teammates playing together. And since the start of last season, we have eight new guys in the rotation. I mean, and that's that's including like Reggie being added and Tolliver and so forth. But eight new guys in the rotation this year that weren't even on the team to begin last year. So they largely don't really know each other. And so knowing where a guy's going to be and, and knowing where to feed him the ball and being familiar with that, and in addition to injuries, you know, to, to guys like Meeks and Jennings, who, by the way, $14 million in combined salary, combined for 26 points a game last year. Um, these guys are 35%, 37% career three-point shooters, primary um, offensive options off the bench when they're healthy. Removing those guys from the bench is enormous because you've got, I mean, what, how much of your bench production would you be getting from those two guys if they were healthy? They also can both dribble the ball and to an extent, you know, Jennings way more than Meeks, but these are guys who you can count on for some offense to some degree, um, certainly off the bench, not having them is enormous. And I don't think that we can undersell the impact that having certainly Brandon Jennings more so than Jody Meeks is going to have on this bench unit and on the team overall, you know, when they're back. Yeah, I totally agree. And those are two players that offensively, I think we're missing so much. And I think one of the bright spots from the road trip, and I, I think I'll kind of turn over to that now, has been the defense. I think we are an above average defensive team. And that, sh- that showed throughout most of the West Coast trip. Ben, uh, is is the defense still this team's strength? Do you, do you still see this as being uh, what's going to drive this team if we uh, if we want to think about the playoffs? Is it's the defensive end? So far, yes. I mean, the defense is really the only reason we are where we are, which is five hundred. You know, through a relatively st- tough stretch of the schedule. Moving forward, um, I like I said way back at the beginning of our podcast episodes. I expected the defense to be good enough. I expect the defense to be adequate and good enough to let the superior offense carry the Pistons to the playoffs. I think moving forward, the offense just absolutely has to get better. Because, you know, I don't know if the defense can hold for 82 games, at least to the extent that it has. I mean, right now there's something like, you know, they're in the top 10 in terms of defensive rating, which is points allowed per 100 possessions. But they're, you know, third or fourth from the bottom in terms of that offensive counterpart. So I really do think that the offense has to improve, and that's got to be the focus um, because I really do think adequate defense is probably the long-term, you know, the long-term prognosis for the team. And if I could step in there, I think if you play top 10 defense, you can't be a bad team off that. It's pretty much historically proven that the easiest way to squeeze some wins out of your schedule as a team without a lot of talent is just get these guys to play some top 10 defense. And the fact that we're doing that so far has been huge. And another number I'd like to point out, just if we're, I get a chance to talk about the offense a little bit more, is that we are last in the league 
by a significant amount in assist percentage. And that is a huge problem and something that SVG talks about a lot in his last post-game interview where he said the ball is just sticking. The ball's sticking. These guys are making decisions before they pass. They're making decisions before the possession starts. I don't know if that's a continuity thing necessarily because there are some teams ranking in the top 10 in assist percentage like Sacramento or Charlotte or even Dallas, teams that have had a lot of turnover. So I think it's, it's ball handling. Ball handling is a huge problem for us right now, and I think Jennings can help with that, but it's hard to count on that. So I think we got our work cut out for us. Uh, Jacob, you make a good point about the offense, and I think that's something I've noticed is the assist numbers being down. And I think one of the nice takeaways from the Lakers game was the play of Spencer Dinwiddie. Is Spencer Dinwiddie or just a backup point guard who maybe is thinking of initiating first? Is that what this team is missing? Um, I don't know if Spencer Dinwiddie is necessarily an NBA answer to anybody's problems in his <laughs> I think certainly he could help. He's a change of pace. He's faster than Blake. He has a much more aggressive mentality than Blake. A lot of these things are more than Blake, but I mean, I don't know if Steve Blake is necessarily the measuring stick by which viable backup point guards are, are measured. So I don't know. Like, more than really, yeah, I think, uh, I think there are better alternatives than Blake in the D-League, and I think even though Dinwiddie might even be a D-League player at this point, I think, why not? You know, I have to say, I really think that once, uh, all they have to really do to get into the playoffs and, and even to be a superior or a, a decent quality playoff team is just play 500 ball until Jennings gets back. You know, I, I don't anticipate him being 100%. I don't think he's going to go off for 20 points a game or anything like that or win six man. But I think it's going to make an enormous difference because not only can he be that guy off the bench unit, but he also can be there to spell Reggie Jackson when he's having one of his off games. Mm-hmm. And Jennings, I'm sure, will be able to play, you know, 30 minutes or so on certain nights when, you know, when he's rested, when he's feeling well, once he's up to speed. And that's going to be that's going to be pretty huge because, remember, last year, even though they had a worse roster, it, you know, when you talk about secondary ball handlers, what did they have last year at the end of the year, you know, during that little 7-4 and four run and, you know, that little good period they had was you're still talking about Tayshaun Prince and Karan Butler really as being the only guys off the bench who could really dribble the ball and create a shot for themselves. And even, you know, these guys are ghosts at this point. So I think they can be successful. And in fact, the first five games, six games prove they can be successful if they're knocking down their shots. And that's, you know, that's a big part of the problem here is that these guys normally shoot 35% not, and they're shooting 30 as a team right now. And that's the difference um, oftentimes in spacing and what Reggie can do and in the final score. So, I think it's going to make a big difference, and they're just going to have to use their defense, I think, to ride it out um, until they can get to that point where they have somebody else to help out. And to unpack the point I don't think I made particularly well earlier, the defense is trending the wrong direction. I think that's what I was trying to say and didn't necessarily say too well. They're still a top-10 team if you're looking at defensive rating, but for the first few games in the season, they were top three. And so even what's been the strength of the team the wheels are starting to shake and rattle, and they're not falling off yet, but we're, we're moving the wrong direction. So, yeah, I think um, the defense, I don't think, can sustain the team for 82 games, at least as an elite defensive team, because I don't think they are an elite defensive team. I think they were just playing really well, and I think they're probably better than all of us thought. I think to expect them to play top five defense over the course of the next 
however many games we have left at this point is probably a little unrealistic. And I think there was some small sample size at play there, too, just with, like, the the first few games that we played weren't against Golden State or the Clippers or anything. Just sure, mentioning absolutely. There too. Plus, you know, guys, you got you got to look at the you got to look at the schedule too. I mean, I, I've you know, you look at the Eastern Conference. I did like you know, took a look today at you know who's played on the road, who's played at home, who's played more games out west, who's played more games in the East, and really of all the teams that are five hundred or better in the East, the Pistons have the fewest home games. They played three games at home, and not only have their road games um, been against you know Atlanta, Chicago, and then you're talking about Golden State. Clippers, you know, out West, they're, they're, they played, you know, a six game West coast trip, you know, six games. They played three sets of back to backs, um, two sets of three and four nights. Mm-hmm. And I, I know I, I heard during a broadcast that the three back to backs was I think the most in the NBA, um, at least tied for the most in the NBA at this point of any team. And two of those back to backs are on the road. You know, these are young guys. They're not experienced. They don't know how to close out games. They're learning to play together. And, you know, they've had a really – they have the third toughest schedule, strength of schedule in the entire NBA. That's according to the – I think it was an ESPN strength of schedule um, link that I saw earlier today. Ahead of them, the other two teams that have a harder schedule are New Orleans at 1-9 and nine, mm-hmm. and the, the 76ers at 0-10. So third strength of schedule, um, third hardest schedule in the NBA, and they're at 5-5. Five and five. So I'd say once you let them get – a breather and start playing some of these chumps. You know, they played none of the they played none of the bottom feeders aside from the two out on the West Coast on the road, you know, second days back to back. And, you know, give them a chance to get rested and get into their groove and play some home games and let's see how their defense looks maybe another ten games from now. Yeah, absolutely, Sean. I think that perspective is the absolutely correct perspective to have. If if you're at all involved on Twitter or in any comment section anywhere on the internet around the Pistons right now, it's pitchforks. I mean, people are <laughs> upset because we've had this really poor stretch of games. But honestly, if if you had told me prior to the first game of the season that the Pistons would emerge from this West Coast road trip and they would be 500 and that Andre Drummond would be a truly dominant force in the NBA that is literally performing at historic levels, who would have been upset? I mean, I certainly wouldn't have. I would have taken that full stop. I don't care who the wins were against, and I don't care who the losses were against. 500 basketball after this very, very arguably the most difficult schedule in the NBA, I'll take it. I don't know what you guys think, but I'll take it. Yeah, and I don't I don't see a really horrible loss yet either. Like, the loss against the Lakers last night was probably the worst because, I mean, that's mostly just because we only put up 85 points against a team that I think a lot of people predicted to be historically bad defensively going into the year. And, I mean, that was a back-to-back after a heartbreaking loss to the Clippers and such. And I, I agree that, you know, if you looked at this from a completely isolated perspective, 5-5 five and five against the schedule is not bad at all. And 5-5 five and five paces might be all we need just to get into the playoffs, honestly. Yeah, I mean, it would have been good enough last year. And Ben, you're right. You actually just took the words right out of my mouth that if you, if someone would have told me at this point in the season that we would have been 5-5, five and five, I would have been very happy with that, especially with the way that Drummond has played. So I think we've already found some reasons that fans should be optimistic. It's been a very tough schedule. Uh, we already got the West Coast trip out of the way. We had the most back-to-backs, or tied for the most back-to-backs so far in the league. Are there any other reasons that we should be optimistic going forward? Is there anything else that that maybe 
fans are harping on that you don't think is fair. Sean, I know you mentioned the three-point numbers. Is, is that something that you still think there's room for optimism there? Okay, you know, it's just the law of averages. I mean, it's got to improve. How long can guys who are, I mean, the, the, the guys who are putting up three-pointers are all, you know, 34 to 40% or more uh, career averages. How much longer are they going to shoot 30%? I mean, I know some of that has to do with the system and familiarity and all that kind of stuff, but it's got to start regressing to the norm, um, at least somewhat for some of them. I mean, KCP at 30% or 29, you know, 30%, and you've got, um, you just, all these guys are shooting below normal. So they've got to start falling in at some point. And you see when they do fall in, like they did against Atlanta, and I think to a certain extent Chicago, if memory serves, you see when they do start hitting those threes, they're really, really good. They can really put points on the board. Um, And Reggie Jackson, you know, I have two theories about last year. When I first was watching last season when he came in and I I saw the 10 games that they lost and then the nice streak that he went on with all the triple doubles and all that kind of stuff, you know, to me, my first impression was that it's a learning curve. He was, he didn't know the system, he didn't know the coach, he didn't know the players and by the time he sort of figured it out he started playing really well and continued playing that way throughout the last you know 17 or so games of the year um this year i don't know maybe there's something somewhat similar going on and that when he gets comfortable he plays really well and when he's not plays really horribly because no one else can handle the ball but reggie and there's no other point guard that can step in and is an nba caliber starting or even close to starting caliber point guard to spell him so it's just like it's Reggie Dewar, you know, we live and we die with his play. So I expect him to improve. I really do. Um, I expect him to get better with the, with the turnovers, more assists, um, more efficiency um, in time as he gets, you know, just more comfortable with his teammates. Sean, you had talked about the team just kind of playing 500 ball until Jennings returns. And I know a lot of people thought that once Jennings came back from his injury, if he proved that he was healthy, he could be a trade asset. Do we need that backup point guard and what Jennings can give us more than what we could get in a trade for him? What's more important to this team right now, something else or or Brandon Jennings? Well, I think the way Sam Van Gundy would look at it is what's better for the team this year versus what's better for the team in his vision and his master plan, you know, for the five-year plan or whatever that he has to build a contender. Um, so it really, honestly, you can't say whether or not it would be the right move to keep him unless you knew what the offer was to get in return. And meaning if you could package Jennings and, you know, Jody Meeks or some other, um, you know, secondary player, um, even a even a Marcus Morris or an Ilda Silva to get an actual starting quality or, or a starting caliber, you know, three or a four player, then, you know, you kind of have to do it because Jennings' contract is up after this year and you don't know if he's going to want to be uh, a backup point guard, you know, to, to Reggie Jackson. Mm-hmm. So that's something that's possible. But to tell you the truth, in order for them to actually make an impact – and get into the playoffs this year. I mean, not just to get into the playoffs, but to do any kind of damage or to you know do more than scrape in. I really think they're going to need him. Um, it's going to be really difficult to trade him away, have Dinwiddie or Blake as your backup, and have that second unit be um, you know be good enough to keep up with some of the better teams. Yeah, definitely. And I know the team is pointed to Christmas possibly as a return time for Jennings. So if we have another 15 games or so until we see Brandon Jennings in uniform, what can the bench do to just get by for right now? Is there something that is missing? Is there a player that needs to step up? What what can salvage this bench right now until Jennings returns? A lot of prayer. A lot of prayer. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm I'm interested to see if there's going to be a lot more staggering because we're going to we're seeing a lot of bench heavy units. We're seeing four guys 
plus Morris, we're seeing the all bench unit. And I think it's just hard to envision how these units are supposed to score. And maybe you guys can sort of fill me in on that. But I sort of look at these these units floundering out there, and I wonder if we you see Anthony Tolliver firing threes that are contested over people, and I sort of wonder what the end game is there because Morris sort of helps because he can at least post up and you can run the offense through him. But mm. all these other guys, I'm I'm really honestly just not sure what the what the plan is here. Yeah, Ben, can you clarify that a bit? Is there a reason that we haven't seen as much staggering? I know Stan Van Gundy has mentioned it in press conferences that maybe it's something the team needs to do going forward, but I've noticed the same thing. That's There's times out there that I'm not sure how we would create any offense with the five that are on the floor. So I think identifying why we're seeing what we're seeing in terms of the rotation is a little bit hard from the fanalist perspective, but I think there are some relatively easy tweaks that might help things a bit. The first one, I think, is going to either Dinwiddie or Blake sooner because both of them have demonstrated the ability to work with Andre Drummond effectively. And doing that may allow Reggie Jackson, who, like we've been harping about, is really the only one who can initiate the offense, to play a bit with that second unit. Um, And maybe it becomes Marcus, Morris, and Reggie Jackson who are playing more with the second unit. The other thing I'd actually like to see um, is a little bit more of Aaron Baines with Reggie Jackson to see how that might work. Because I actually think Baines has been fairly solid as sort of a a cleanup guy, not a post-up guy, but a cleanup guy. But then thirdly, I would actually like to see more uh, Ilya Silva. I think he's been far superior to Anthony Tolliver in everything but sort of the hustle category, which isn't something you really quantify on the stat sheet necessarily. But he's the only guy who's actually shooting the ball well from three. He's been a very capable team defender. In particular, um, he's been exceptional at drawing charges. And I think defenses have to pay attention to him if they make some sort of concerted effort to involve him in the offense, which right now he's he's basically just a a spot-up shooter. But I think maybe if he played a bit more and they made more of an attempt to get him involved – that he might be sort of a third option. First option being the the Drummond-Jackson pick-and-roll. Second option being Morris and sort of that mid-post, high-post. And then third, I don't know what the play is exactly to run for Ilyasova, but I think he's got a little bit more to his game than just standing there and shooting open three-pointers, even though he's been absolutely great at that for us so far. Uh, I'd like to see him maybe in the post, maybe in the high-post, or maybe even in a pick-and-pop situation, which we haven't seen much of yet either. Well, you know, the, you heard Stan, you heard Stan Van Gundy saying, I'm sorry, you, you heard Stan Van Gundy, um, I, I read a quote somewhere where he was talking about how uh, Ilya Silva played so much in the Turkish League or something over the summer uh, with their team that he was tired and he was, that's why he wasn't running him as many minutes. Um, you know, he hasn't played, what, I think 24 to 26 or something, 28 minutes maybe? It's a lot lower than the other starters, and he, I mean, he's he's really efficient. The only downside is that he does a lot of those um, pump fakes and kind of passes up what could be open looks, um, and that's probably why his percentage is staying at 42. He's not taking a lot of contested shots or, or a lot of bad shots, um, but you'd like to see him shooting more of them, certainly, given the percentage that he's shooting at, and given how you know awful their bench has been, you, you'd like to see him out there more. Uh, the problem is that the, the other three guys, um, you know, three of the top five guys in minutes in the NBA 
are Marcus Morris, KCP, and um, and uh, I'm sorry, Andre Drummond. So three of the top five guys in the NBA in minutes played. They're playing 37, 37, I think 36 minutes a game. They're they just went on a six game road trip again. All those back to backs, all those three and four nights. These guys are your four guys, and they're dog tired. Um, and so you got to find some way to take some of the burden off them, and it's got to go on somebody else. Otherwise, these guys on, on these second nights of back-to-backs are just going to be um, struggling, and you can see it. Yeah, I think the problems with Ilya so, so far have been uh, conditioning. He doesn't look like he's moving well after those 20 minutes, after those 25 minutes. And I also am not sure how well staggering him with the bench is going to go because, he's again, he's a ball stopper. He hasn't been moving the ball well. Looking at the last two games, 18 shots, 25 shooting possessions, zero assists. So I don't know if he really solves necessarily what we're looking for out of our bench. Yeah, I think it depends on what what it is you're looking for. He's not a facilitator. He's the end of the possession for sure, absolutely. But he's shooting 42% from deep. He's shooting almost four threes a game in only 25 minutes. So if it is conditioning, and I just haven't observed that, and you guys might be right exactly hitting the nail on the head there, but... I mean, he's shooting the ball at 42%, and he's shooting off almost four times a game, like I said. To me, that's a guy you try to build in more looks for rather than less, um, even if he, he isn't necessarily the facilitator, which he absolutely isn't. Given how much this team is struggling, though, just in, in distributing minutes, um, he's, I just, it's a lot, he just got, you got to find a way to get him somewhere. you got to get him up around 30, I think, at least, given until Jennings gets back, until, you know, they have some more support coming off the bench. I don't, I don't really care where who, which unit he plays with. He just needs to be out there a little bit more um, because when he is, he's an asset. Yep, he's at least the guy that you can't leave. Exactly, and that creates, it helps to create that space that they so desperately need. So Van Gundy's been hitting on the ball stopping, and I think that's a really apt way to talk about what our offense uh, has been doing. They just haven't been moving the ball. But I think the flip side of that coin is player movement. And when you watch this team's offense, I mean, so spitballing 90% of the time maybe is either a pick and roll or a Marcus Morris high post. And beyond that, there's there's nothing else that's happening. It's almost as if they don't really have a playbook, which is kind of surprising to me. But when you watch some of the other successful offenses in the NBA, Atlanta really comes to mind here for me watching a lot of them last year. There's a lot of set plays that involve a lot of player movement. Now, given Atlanta has Kyle Korver to run off screens and be potent from beyond the arc, but we're not seeing very much of anything like that at all from the Pistons. It's either the pick and roll, which has been defended very well so far, or it's Marcus Morris, who started off hot and has just sort of fallen off a cliff the last couple games. So there has to be a third something, um, whatever that something is, and I, I hope it involves some player movement and some actual structured plays that forces the defense to react and respond a little bit. And I think that will ultimately facilitate some of the ball movement uh, that Van Gundy wants. Yeah, definitely. I've, I've noticed with player movement like you're talking about in the ball movement, it seems sometimes with Van Gundy's system, and as he's still putting this roster together in his image, we definitely have a good theory of how we want to play basketball, but we don't always know how to execute it. So we definitely, you know, we're still in the top 10 in three-point attempts. We're trying to get to the free throw line more, but it just seems that sometimes we're having trouble executing that vision. Is the execution on the players? Is it on the makeup of the roster? Is it on coaching? What exactly can you point to, Ben, What as to why it hasn't 
happened so far through, you know, a year and 10 games of Van Gundy. So losing Greg Monroe really hurts here. And I'm not going to spend much time talking about Greg Monroe, but throwing the ball into the post and getting, you know, 50% of his buckets converted in the post is a luxury that not many teams have. And we lost that. And as a result, I think maybe it was easy for Van Gundy to just sort of default to that when things weren't going well last year. And maybe he didn't anticipate um, the significant hole that was going to leave in the playbook uh, when Monroe left. I think right now there's two things for sure that are in play and they're both related to each other. One is personnel. This team is really built around the Jackson Drummond pick and roll, and it has not worked. It's done very little of what it did all sorts of last year over the course of the last 27 games. It's been almost a non-factor in several of the contests so far. And then the second thing is the injuries, which are obviously related to the personnel. I think not having Jody Meeks is actually hurting a lot more than people realize because I think last year, the way he closed the season, he was quietly very, very good for us. And I think our offense would look a whole lot different if Jody Meeks were out there doing what he does, which is shoot the ball at a very efficient clip from just about everywhere on the floor. Um, Those two things, personnel and then the injuries, and of course we've already discussed Jennings, um, they've really hamstrung Van Gundy's options. Uh, Because when you look at this roster, I've been thinking about it all week, and I'm struggling to figure out, okay, what is that third thing? If it's not the pick and roll, if it's not Morris in the high post, it's got to be something around ball and player movement, but what? And I, at the moment, don't have an answer to it. Maybe one of you guys can can help me with that because I I sure don't know yet. Well, I think like one of these things here is personnel related with the pick and roll because as far as I know, I mean it's a simplified version of it, but simplified version of it. But Van Gundy's system is sort of just the pick and roll. It's a monstrous center who's a ma- major threat and bends the defense. But there has to be more than that. There have to be players who, after that separation is created can make the passes, find the open man. Because the open man's there. They're just not being found. Guys aren't, guys aren't thinking and making their decisions fast enough. Or the way I thought about it with Jackson, and I tried to say it earlier kind of poorly, but he's not making decisions at all. He's simplifying it so that he's already decided that he's going to shoot. And I think there are guys, when we talk about the ball sticking, I think that's a personnel thing more than it is that the idea of the pick and roll just isn't enough. I think it's just not being optimized the fullest level because I think with the ball movement and the player movement aspects that the Hawks and the Spurs do, they do it with these highly intelligent NBA vets who can pass the ball all over the court and you just never know where the ball is going. And I think we just look very predictable and very easy to defend right now. And I'm not sure if it's that our players just don't have the connective tissue. I think that's a very pessimistic way of looking at it and probably not the correct way. But I think it's simpler than – it's more complicated and the problems are more deep-seated than just a little bit of a coaching change. I think you have to look at age. I mean, when it comes to like, – who, who do the Spurs and the Hawks have? The Hawks have an average age of 30 on their roster. They're, they don't have much longer to compete at a high level, honestly, before Horford leaves or some of these guys, you know, Corbett being 35 years old. The Pistons play, their core players are all under 26 years old. I mean, and several of their really key players are 22 and under. These guys have not learned 
how to be in the right place in the right time. They have not learned the little things that you do that make the game easier yet. But that doesn't mean that they're not incredibly talented and they don't have a bright future. So when you're looking at games like, you know, some of these games that they blew out of the West Coast trip, um, you know, add Jennings into the mix, add Meeks into the mix, you know, take into account the fact that these guys are very, very young and are still learning how to play the game of basketball. They're not getting blown off the court. They're looking awful. Their offense is clunky as hell. Um, but they, you know, talent wise, they're, it's, there's just so much room for hope with this team, just given some of the numbers Dre is putting up and what, what Reggie is capable of doing when he's on. Um, I would honestly take him over a lot of other point guards in the league just because of what he's shown when, when he's really hitting on all cylinders. So I really think you know fans are going to have to be patient with this team. And that doesn't mean wait for the playoffs for three more years. It means this year they're going to have to be patient and give Stan and give these guys some time to figure each other out and give some of the younger guys a chance to start to figure things out. And I, I think you're, you're really going to see a, a much, much better and sharper team in the second half of the year um, after Jennings comes back. That's perfect, Sean. And it actually leads me to a question I was going to save until mailbag, but I think it makes sense to just bring it up right now. And again, hashtag AskDBB. Uh, we'll continue to just kind of... Uh, get your questions and answer as many as we can on this podcast. Uh, we got one last week from Joe W10Have. Uh, is it fair to say the Pistons are similar to the 12-13 Warriors, both coming off bad years, and then the younger talent started to take over? Uh, Sean, you just kind of mentioned, you know, fans should be patient. You have shown that we can compete this year. Uh, is that a fair comparison to a team like that? You know, I don't know. It's, it's different talent, so it's hard to say exactly. I mean, I, you know, I hate to draw an exact comparison or anything really close. I will just say that while it's going to take some patience, I also think that they're really close. You know, I still believe this team can win 46 games this year. I've, I mean, my, my initial prediction was that they're going to be about 500, you know, around Christmas time when Jennings comes back. And then I thought they were going to play around 600 ball after he does. I think, you know, as long as, as long as he's 80% or 75% Brandon Jennings that we know, um, I really expect this to be a superior team, um, in the East in the second half of the year. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think people should, and I think next year, certainly if, with free agency and that extra money and, and the ability of Stan to make these excellent trades that he's been making and trading up and finding diamonds in the rough. I think next year, this team is going to be a top Eastern team. Uh, I mean, I think they're going to be, I think other teams are going to fall off and they're going to rise up. Yeah, I agree with you. And I actually, just to kind of go off that comparison a bit with those Warriors teams, uh, especially under Mark Jackson, it was the defense that took the step forward first. So if we become an above-average defensive team this year and the offense remains kind of stagnant, just somewhere in kind of the middle of the you know offensive ratings in the NBA, I think that's a good thing. I think it's something to build off of because, again, it's a young core. If they can learn what they need to do on the defensive end, I think it will come on the offensive end because, again, we have a theory and we have a coach who has a system that has been successful in this league. So I think you're right. I think it'll just take a little bit of time, but we don't have to wait too long. Uh, I've already looked at the schedule going into March and April, and actually, the second half of the season, the schedule definitely seems easier than the first half. Uh, So you're right, maybe 500 ball until the All-Star break is good enough for this team. 
Yeah, and the fact that they've been able to play 500 ball while their offense has been a, an absolute <laughs> shambles is really is really encouraging. I mean, I'm sorry if I'm the eternal optimist, but I have to look at that and think, my God, if they were able to even shoot 33% from three, they'd probably have a couple extra wins in there. They'd be seven and three with the hardest schedule in the NBA. So, uh, you know, look, I, I'm not trying to discount the problems with Reggie. It frustrates me just as much as it frustrates all the other fans that I see just cursing the game threads. Um, but, I, you know, you have to look at the long view, and I think there's a lot of reasons to, to still be positive about what they're going through right now. And another reason to be positive, and Jacob, I'll turn it over to you. Uh, we got a question from DreATD on Twitter. Again, ask DBB if you want to ask us any questions for the next show. Jacob, you helped cover the Grand Rapids Drive, the D-League affiliate team for the Detroit Pistons. And Dre was asking what we should expect from the drive this season and if there are any players that could be on the Pistons' radar for this season. Is there any players that we should be optimistic about that are in Grand Rapids right now? I think so, yeah. I think that there are guys hidden in Grand Rapids that could actually be helpful for this team in a pinch. And I think you shouldn't expect too much out of the D-League at this point. The D-League is still kind of being felt out by the NBA as whether this is going to work as a legit minor league system. Like, most people I talk to don't really... I mean, I guess I guess there's just a lot of confusion about the D-League and what it means. But the Drive definitely have a lot of legitimate NBA talent on their roster. I do really think that. You got Henry Sims, who they just picked up, who was a legit rotation player, I mean, for the Sixers. But, I mean, he was a fairly efficient player who rated well by advanced metrics. And if we had an injury to Drummond or Baines, I think he could fill in very well. We have uh, Adonis Thomas, who didn't really get a chance to compete for the Pistons roster this year because of an injury, but he was signed to a contract by the Pistons, so they've definitely got their eye on him. He's a guy who can shoot it from deep. He's a guy who can create for himself, not much of a distributor, but I look at him and see someone who could energize our bench in a pinch if he plays well. I also think that we have a couple of guys who could get run as NBA backup point guards at the drive, which are Ryan Boatwright from Connecticut, who went undrafted in this draft, but was signed by the Pistons just to waive him. So he's the only player on the drive that the Pistons have the exclusive rights to. So that shows that they have at least some interest in whether this guy can play. So maybe he'll get a chance if Dinwiddie struggles or if Blake struggles. And same with Lorenzo Brown, who the drive just picked up, and he was called up by the Minnesota Timberwolves last year when their entire team was hurt and actually played all right as a point guard for the Timberwolves. But yeah, I think if you head over to Grand Rapids to watch the drive, there will be some guys who have legitimate NBA talent who could play for the Pistons. And I think uh, there's this article that I put out today on DBB that you can read little profiles of these guys and also see who could maybe get sent down to the drive. Yes, and what player, uh, just to kind of preview that article a bit, what player did you see as the most likely to move down and if a player from the Pistons moves down, which player from the drive is more likely to, to be called up? I see them swapping Darren Hilliard for Adonis Thomas. Thomas is a little bit older. He's got a lot more experience. He is more of a proven creator for himself. And then Hilliard, I don't, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think he's played a single minute for the Pistons yet. So they might want to be able to give him some playing time and see what they have in Hilliard. Well, if Thomas is excelling in the D-League, then they might want his more immediate production if we're trying to make a playoff run, which I believe we are. 
Yeah, that's right. And uh, we look forward to you covering the drive all season, and we'll probably have you on later in the year just to get an idea of how the drive are doing, and we need to start to examine some of these players a little bit closer if the bench continues to struggle. So I want to look just into the near future. Uh, There's going to be three games until the next recording of this podcast. Home game with Cleveland tomorrow night. And then another set of back-to-backs, so wonderful. Friday night, we're at Minnesota. Saturday, we're home for Washington. Uh, So I want to get from each of you a record in those three games and what you expect to see from the team in those three games. Ben, I'll start with you. I think the Cavs are a tall order. Um, I think it's likely that they probably lose to the Cavs in spite of the fact that they're going to be back at home. Although, I would have said that last year when they completely dominated the Cavs in one of those games as well. So... Uh, anything can and can happen and does happen in the NBA on any given night, but I think that'll be a tough one. Um, but then I think it would be uh, it'd be great to see them emerge from that stretch um, two and one. Um, I think it's doable. I think getting back home, getting rested, getting a couple quality practices in, and the facilities in which you're comfortable. And Sean talked about how important comfort is. Uh, I, I expect the ship to be righted a little bit. Maybe not right away against Cleveland, but I expect them to look a whole lot better uh, af- after that Cleveland game for sure. And Jacob, what are your expectations and record for the next three games? You know, I think it's a, a tall order to predict individual games. I think that the most likely outcome is 0-3. I guess I'm just the uh, eternal pessimist, but <laughs> I think that's what <laughs> I think that's what we should expect with how the team is playing right now and how good these three teams that we're going against look. But I could certainly see us stealing a game or two. Yeah, definitely. Sean, your uh, expectation and your win total if you have one. Yeah, this seems so hard to predict because I would have predicted that they were going to lose to Atlanta and Chicago and maybe Utah and that they were going to beat San Sacramento and beat the Lakers and maybe the Clippers. So it's really, you know, pick your poison. Um, but I, I would say um, they could be Cleveland. They're, they're the kind of emotional team. They could come, come home, get hot, and Cleveland could have an off night. They could win that game. But I'll say probably 2-1. and one. I actually think we spend so much time focusing on how bad the Pistons are when they're struggling, and you just kind of like see the scores from some of the other teams. that You, you forget that these other teams are having their struggles too. Washington does not look very good at all. They've got uh, – really nothing up front in, in the front court. I think Drummond's going to run rampant on them. Um, and Minnesota, they're so young, just like the Pistons. They're even younger than the Pistons. It's not going to be extremely difficult with two days of rest um, to go in there and, and steal a game from them. They're, they're nothing to be feared. So I think 2 and one's very reasonable. Uh, Jacob, you're right. 0-3 might seem probable right now. I think 3-0 and is possible. Sean, you're right. Washington's not playing well. Uh, Minnesota, I don't know if this is just early season success or if they're a team to be taken seriously right now. And I can see Cleveland, you're right, that being a game where emotionally the Pistons show up and put on the type of performance they they had against Chicago and Atlanta this year, uh, where they play up to their opponent and the shots are falling. And it might be nice just to have a day off when you're back home instead of having those days off on the road like we've had over the last 10 days. Just, just you know, four games ago, um, you know, Golden State... Everyone in the game thread is like, oh my god, this is the greatest loss we've ever watched, and they lost by 14, but we were coming out of that game talking about how awesome the Pistons looked and how proud we were to be Pistons fans, because they were kind of almost 
on the verge of being, you know, being competing with Golden State. So don't forget that this team is capable of competing with the best in the league. They beat Atlanta. They did beat Chicago. They did beat Utah. Um, they beat a good Portland and a good Phoenix team on the road. And they, you know, were playing well against Golden State. So a few tough losses at the end of the West Coast swing. They could be right in there, and they could be up by 10 at halftime against Cleveland tomorrow. We, we really don't know until they play it. But that's, that's what this team's capable of. Uh, in preparation for tomorrow's game. Um, anyone remember their first 15 or 20 games from a year ago? They started off 4-7. and seven. Five of their first seven were on the road. And everybody was talking about whether or not they should blow it up and, and <laughs> try to trade Kevin Love or Kyrie Irving. Or it's just whatever. never going to work. <laughs> yeah, it was never going to work. So they went on to win 53 games and go to the finals, and you know they're probably going to be the, the overwhelming favorites to do that again this year from the East. Not say the Pistons are as good as the Cavs. I don't think they are. Um, but even elite teams have these kinds of stretches. It happens to everybody. Yeah, definitely, especially early in the year when uh, it's still a, a pretty fresh team. It's still a young team, so you're right. The teams will go through stretches like this, uh, especially when you have a six-game road stretch to start the season. So I, I still am holding on to that optimism uh, because I look at the losses, and Sean, you're right. The 14-point loss to Golden State was almost a celebration. And, you know, a tr- a, giving up a triple-double to Rajon Rondo, that will take a lot of off of you as a fan. It, it was tough to see that, a big game from DeMarcus Cousins and, and Rajon Rondo. So that team was clicking. We allowed a big performance from Jamal Crawford, and then we played terrible against the Lakers. Those games are going to happen. They just so happen to fall right in a row. So I'm still holding on to a bit of that that optimism, really because a lot of things we talked about in this episode. So that just about wraps up this episode. Some very tough news today. The Detroit Bad Boys lost a member of our community, of our family. Yeah, um, yeah. so it really had me hearts when I read this, new, uh, this news this morning. Uh, my heart broke. Um, Ron Marshall has been a member of our community for as far back as I can remember. Um, and he's most well-known in our community for the sort of off-the-wall crazy, impossible ESPN trade machine scenarios that he come up with, which usually involve no less than 10 players and four teams, um, and several violations of the collective bargaining agreement happen all at the same time. Um, and if you followed Ron outside of DBB the way I did, followed him on Twitter, um, uh, enjoyed what he was trying to accomplish within, within his community, um, you kind of got a glimpse into the person that he was. He was a great, he was a great guy. Uh, and so we are very sad uh, to see him pass away this past Sunday. Um, I would encourage all of you uh, readers and listeners to check out the post that one of our readers put up, and it's now on the front page. Um, there are some ways to kind of contribute to memorializing Ron and helping out his family uh, in the wake of this horrible tragedy. So so happy hearts. We wish um, his family the best thoughts and prayers for those of us who pray are definitely going out to to Ron's family today. Yeah, I just wanted to chime in and say that um, just for me personally, um, I know how much Ron Marshall um, contributed to the community, and I know how much I'm sure he enjoyed it. Um, I do. It adds a lot of value to my life. I think it's the best blog that I've seen out there, and I really want to say that I appreciate all you guys. I enjoy the chats. I enjoy the intelligence. I enjoy the analysis. And I think that everyone who comes to that community and adds something positive take something good away from it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I was so motivated in getting this podcast back together because we do have such an active 
vibrant community of basketball fans and Pistons diehards. And it's so great to have a place where we can kind of come together and, uh, again, answer questions and, and talk about the team that we love. It's a site I check every day. And if before I was a member, I, I did the exact same thing. So uh, you're right. It is a great place to kind of continue my fandom, uh, even when the team isn't on the court. And I got to thank both of you for joining me and for all of your contributions to the site. Sean, I, I didn't know you were HypnoWheel at first, and some of your fan posts have been some of my favorite posts, going back to some of the things over the summer when you would cover the projections in the Eastern Conference. And it was nice to see someone else who was overly optimistic while trying to remain realistic about this team. I always really appreciated that. Uh, it's, I, I, I'm happy to bring it to the community. I, I know that there's a lot of negativity, especially given how bad the business have been for so long. And, you know, what I do for a living is helping people to have better outlooks on life. So it's just kind of a, a natural fit. Uh, I, I really do, you know, I really do sincerely believe that finally they're, they're on the, <laughs> on the verge of cutting, turning that corner. So it's, I'm, I'm happy to contribute and I, I'm glad it's appreciated by some people. Oh, the time to, to try and to crush your dream, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, let everybody know where they can find you on Twitter and then Jacob will ask you to do the same. Uh, yeah, I'm at HypnoWheel on Twitter and pretty much everywhere else. So you can just uh, Google that and you'll be able to find all my stuff. Perfect. That's easy. And Jacob, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at jkyv, which is just J-K-U-Y-V. All right. And we look forward to some coverage of the Grand Rapids Drive. We'll definitely have both of you on again. So for myself, Jordan Ballant, and for Ben Galker, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. And we'll be coming to you next week with a new episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening.